Thanks, Terry. Afternoon. Hey. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing of you to be giving your 100% attention while the Dodgers start their next game in the playoff. Um, <laughs> who are the Dodgers? Whatever. Um, but yeah, it is great to, to be with you two weeks in a row. And Terry's asked uh, me to just follow broadly the theme of worship. Last week we talked on worship and rest. And uh, today I, I want to look at a very well-worn passage. You've heard many messages probably from this, John 4. And it's Jesus' uh, teaching and conversation, really, to a, a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, it begins about theology, moves to marriage, and ends with an incredible statement about worship. And uh, we are, are going to talk around that. I, In some ways, it's so simple, it's embarrassing. But um, I, I really just felt God prompt me to, to talk out of this passage, and I'm, I'm excited. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to... I, th- I, think, I think it's called uh, opening up a well of worship. And I'm a little nervous of that title because that's presumptuous. That's like, well, is there no well of worship here? And, uh, and there is. So I want to give a preamble and, and just say without flattery that um, Renell and I have encountered the Lord in worship with you over the years in some incredibly profound ways. Uh, I try and steer away from nostalgia, but this church we hold very dearly in our heart because we've been visiting here since 97. And uh, one of my earliest memories was worshipping on top of um, a kind of a skyscraper building somewhere in the art district um, with someone at the piano, and we were just gathered in this loft and just going, God, you are meeting us so powerfully. And, uh, and that hasn't stopped. The last church that we visited as a couple before we ended our sabbatical uh, was, was you in the summer. And again, God just met us so powerfully and so sweet, sweetly in worship. We, we understand that worship is not just singing songs, and I'm going to speak more broadly than that. But certainly when the church gathers to lift up their voices, uh, we are joining in the anthem of all creation. Jesus said, if you do not praise me, the rocks will cry out and praise me. We, we are joining in uh, the anthem of, of the church uh, for the last 2,000 years and the people of God before that, and we are joining in an eternal anthem. There's something about singing, although worship isn't just singing, that is eternal. Uh, we won't preach, but we will sing. And uh, so we, we are going to look at, at what it is actually from a passage that has very little to do with singing, but we're going to apply it to particularly the gathered church as they sing. So turn with me um, to John 4, if you don't mind. And... Uh, We are going to read from verse 1 to verse 24. Now, when Jesus learnt that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. 
it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself. And as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, So I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the word of the Lord. What is it to be a church that recognizes that a a well of worship has been opened among you as a people, but it's it's a well that needs to be continually unstopped? I would describe the well of worship in Mercy Town Uh, as we've dipped in to that well over the years, to be uh, a well of simplicity, a well of authenticity, uh, a well of humility, a a well of theology, and a well of intimacy. Uh, Mercy Town's worship well, at its best, are are all those things. But but any people, if you look at, uh, at the well, Jacob's well, the story of Jacob's well, was that Jacob's uh, son Isaac had to come and unstop the well in Genesis 26 because the Philistines came and filled it with junk and rocks, etc. And so when Isaac came along, he didn't just open up new wells. He did that, but he unstopped the well of his father. So when I talk about opening up a well of worship, I'm asking what is it as a people to, to take responsibility for the well of worship among you? We know that worship is singing songs. It's much more than that. Uh, but, but, but worship, God wants to dwell among his people. And this passage is Jesus talking about worship uh, being to, to a father, not just to God, but, but to a father. In other words, someone who's knowable. And it's no surprise that, that he talks about worship around a well because, because 
a well talked of the life of any community. It talked about deep satisfaction, and we know this, this uh, flow of, of the theme of wells throughout Scripture is, is that the people of God continue to dig wells that cannot satisfy. Why do you dig your own wells when actually the, Jesus, God, is the well of living water? And Jesus, in John 7, talking about the well, he's saying, anyone who believes in me, it will be like rivers of living water or wells of living water welling up to eternal life. And he was talking about the outpouring of the Spirit. This, this theme of, of wells talks about the life and presence of God among the people of God. And what is it to take responsibility for keeping that well open? So we're going to look at, at, at four truths that a people own to keep a well of worship open. The first is that, that God is a seeker. The second is that God is seeking worshipers more than worship. Uh, the fourth is that God is seeking true worshipers. And the fourth, did I say fourth? The third is God is seeking true worshipers. And the fourth is that God is seeking spiritual worshipers. So let's uh, dive into that. God is, is a seeker. We, we, we see Jesus, fully God, fully man, Taking a long way round, he didn't have to go through Samaria to get where he was going. But it says this, he left Judea and departed again for, for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. If you look at your maps, it's like it's not the obvious way to go to Jerusalem through Samaria. And actually, Jews didn't generally associate with Samaritans. Samaritans were the junkyard dogs of the day. They were nearly neither culturally Jewish, nor were they religiously Jewish. They were looked down on. But, but Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he was so intent on going through Samaria, on having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, that it says Jesus wearied from his journey. I think one of the mistakes we make in terms of worship, whether it's singing songs, whether it's prayer, whether it's laying your life down in, in, in good works and justice and mercy, is that it's very easy for us to feel like God is playing hide and seek with us. And so we, we sing our songs, we gather to pray, or we go out to do just and, justice and mercy and evangelism in the hope that we will find this, this elusive God. And we know that the Psalms, which are, which are the worship hymn book of the people of God, often talk about the experience of the people of God, experiencing God as far off and elusive. Oh God, why do you stand so far off from me? And, and so it's natural to feel that. But what we see here before Jesus starts his discourse on worship is, is we see he embodies that God is seeking. He's not playing hide and seek. In fact, the broad strokes of scripture show that we are playing hide and seek and God is coming looking. And that's the beginning of being a, a worshiping people, is realizing that, that God came to seek. Jesus said about himself, the reason the Son of Man came was to seek and to save what was lost. And here Jesus, he, he makes this long way around through Samaria, and he wearies himself from his journey. So much so that in his humanity, he's thirsty. Don't you love that about Jesus? It's a picture of his whole mission. Going to the cross, he wearies himself. He pours himself out. He's thirsty on the cross. Why? Because he came to seek and save us. The very beginnings of, of the creation story in this hide-and-seek relationship with, 
God and his creation is Adam and Eve hiding in the garden with shame, with guilt. And what does God do? He kills an animal and he comes looking. Adam, where are you? Where are you? He comes looking with skins. That's the grand narrative of God. Us hiding in shame and him coming with skins. The God of sacrifice, the God of mercy to come and cover. And we need to begin there. That God is not playing hard to get with us. I know it feels like that at times, but actually we need to allow this truth to settle in. Jesus came to seek and save, seek and find. He wearies himself to come and have a conversation with one woman at a well. God is seeking. We are not seeking him. And Jesus speaks of God as a knowable father. The heart of the gospel is Jesus, that, that sacrifice for us. The, the picture of, of, of the skins is ultimately the picture of Jesus dying as the sacrificial lamb on the cross. But we need to understand in our worship that, that justification, this idea that Jesus' death on the cross justifies us, clothes us in his righteousness. That's a beautiful part of worship. But, but worship doesn't stop at justification. What Jesus speaks of is not just the justification of his death. What he speaks of is the gospel of adoption. He says, you Samaritans worship a God you do not know. But I want to remind you or reveal to you a father who is knowable. John Stott talked about the gospel of adoption being like the garden and the gospel of justification being like the gate. Justification means, Jesus, I, I understand that you lived the life I could not li live. You died the death that I should have died in my place, making me righteous before God. But actually, John Stott says that idea of the gospel is great, but it's the gate to the garden. Adoption that Christ the Son was rejected that we as sons and daughters might be accepted and adopted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Is actually this adoption welcome. That's what Jesus is talking about, that this God is knowable. And he's not playing hard to get. He's not playing hide and seek. So God is a seeker. That's how it begins. Secondly, that, that God is not just seeking. He's seeking worshipers. He's seeking worshipers. I, I, I used to have this understanding of, of God as kind of a, a song taster, as kind of a, a, a judge up in heaven, you know, doing uh, one of these multitudinous uh, song judging shows. Busby, you've probably been a judge, you know, and you, you're kind of like, he's, he's, he's testing good song, bad song. And if he really likes the song, he presses his chair, goes, here I am, you know. Because we, we have an idea that God is seeking. Okay, you're seeking, but you're seeking worship. And Jesus really confronts this idea when the Samaritan woman starts to talk about, about mountains. You worship on this mountain. We worship on this mountain. And she's talking about culture and she's talking about style and saying, well, well which is the right mountain? And Jesus is just saying, it's not about a mountain. It's about a well. The father is not seeking worship. He's seeking worshipers. Now, every single one of us have our preferred worship mountain, worship culture, worship style, which includes length of service, 
which includes style of worship. You might, you might prefer kind of the Chris Tomlin mountain or the Kirk Franklin mountain or the Bethel mountain or the hymns mountain, like where, where, where you go, like this is, my, this is my heart language of worship. God doesn't have mountains. God, through his son, purchased and redeemed every nation, tribe, and tongue to gather around his well of worship. And Jesus is saying, actually, the Father is seeking worshipers, not worship. God is just big enough and loving enough to enjoy it all. We can have our preferred style, but actually, the Father loves it all. And actually, what, what attracts the Father to a people, if he's seeking, seems to be the quality of worshiper more than worship. And honestly, Mercy Town, this is one of your, your trump cards. Because often people have, have an understanding of, well, well the kind of, of, of worship gathering where God really arrives has to be kind of big band, lights, you know, big show. Actually, it's, it's so much more what happens off the stage in the people of God than what happens on the stage. Have you ever been gathered with the people of God at times when it's just, it's not your style of worship. It's not your mountain. And you go like, this isn't really connecting me with me, but, but God is here. Renal and I were talking on the, on the way here. We, we've started connecting with a little church in our, in our city led by a good friend of mine, Vaughn, and his wife, Mary. And Vaughn is African-American, and Mary is Egyptian. And so their worship is, is very mysterious. It's a mixture of like R&B and sort of Egyptian Coptic pentatonic scale. It's just, it's crazy. And I just, we, we, I go preach there quite often. I just like, this is so not my mountain. But there's a well of God's presence here. These people love God. These people are pouring out their hearts to God. And they're also drinking deeply of the fountain of God. I believe God's heart is drawn to a people. Not a people that, how is it on stage? It's great when the music is good. It's great being led by Busby. It's, it's great being led by Becca. But actually, what, what draws the heart of God is the worshipers more than the worship. We, we, we often need to ask our non-musical worshipers about the well. Because as, as musicians, we kind of do a song tasting thing. Good song, bad song, good song, bad song. My wife is musical, but she's not a musician. And often I'll, I'll go, what, what, what's going on here? Because she's not listening so musically. She's more the sense of, are we hosting the presence of God well? Are we just singing about God or, or, or are we singing to him? Are we engaging the Father? Are we enjoying our adoption as sons and daughters, very early on in our marriage, I, I, I learned of the power of a worshiper through my wife. And I was writing songs, was traveling around the world, recording them. But actually, I developed night terrors early on in our marriage. And I would sometimes wake up and this worship leader, I was just paralyzed by fear. And I'd have to wake up my wife and say, please, will you worship over me? I cannot move my mouth. And she'd sing with her little voice, a timid voice, but there was strength in it. And God's presence would come and peace would come. God is seeking worshipers. 
I, I, I want to plead with those of you who don't have great voices and those of you who are not musicians, because this church is full of musicians, and that's great, but actually the non-musical worshipers are what makes this church a worshiping church or not. God is seeking worshipers, not worship. Thirdly, God is seeking true worshipers. Okay, okay, he's seeking worshipers. What, what kind of worshipers is he singing? Is, 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 he, is he seeking? And I, this is so simple. I just want to break down verse 24. Those who worship God, God is seeking true worshipers. Those who worship God will worship him in spirit and truth. So we, we're just going to break down what it means to be a true worshiper as a people, and then what it means to be a spiritual worshiper. Is that all right? I would suggest biblically that, that true worshipers are true in two ways, at least two ways. The first is that they're true in life, that we understand this is not just about singing a few songs. Interestingly, Jesus, as they get to this discourse about worship, Jesus just makes a beeline for this lady's marriage. She's like, well, let's, let's just leave theology and culture on the side. How's your marriage? Funny you should ask. And he has an insight into the fact that she has this lifestyle. Even though she's interested in the things of God, she has this lifestyle that, that, that is in a, an unhealthy pattern. You've had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is, is not your own, not your husband. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the Father is seeking worshipers, but he's far more interested in a life laid down than a song offered up. And we see that as a theme throughout Scripture. Amos 5, I love it and I hate it, where, where God says to his people, I hate the music of your songs. And then he says, but let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. In other words, God is shown to love the gatherings of his people, especially as they sing. If there's going to be worship in eternity, God loves singing. In fact, Zephaniah 3 says that God rejoices over us with singing. God is a, is a singing God. But, but, but what Jesus was helping us to understand is that there's a conflict in the heart of God when the song we sing and the life we live is in discord. The Apostle Paul picks up on it in Ephesians 5, he's echoing Amos 5. I, I hate the music of your songs, but let justice roll like a river. He's, he's saying actually there's, there's a discord, called, there's, there's not harmony between the songs you sing and the life you live. And Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, don't get drunk on wine, but, but be filled with the Spirit. Sing and make melody in your heart to God. In other words, when we sing, there's two songs that God hears. The one is the, the song we're singing, and the other is the melody of our heart, the melody of our life. And God, because He's God, hears both. We only hear one. He, he hears both. And, and God in His kindness is drawing His people and just saying, I know we mess up. But actually, that's why part of worship is confession and repentance. That's why we continually go to the table of the Lord. It's not for those who have it together. It's for those who recognize they don't have it together. Because part of worship is realizing, Lord, the song I'm singing is not harmonizing with the life I'm living. Uh, our first son, our oldest son, who's now 18, uh, when he was a was a baby, we, we, we gave him on the beachfront his first taste of ice cream. 
And I'll never forget Asher having his first taste of chocolate ice cream. And it gave him an almighty ice cream headache. And there we were on the beach. It was just dripping all over him onto the, onto the sand, etc. And he's just licking this thing. He's just loving it, but he's crying at the same time. You know, ah, ah, ah. And it, it was funny. In the moment, I just had something of, of a picture of in some small way, perhaps that's how God feels in worship. I'm loving my people. My children singing to me, pouring out their hearts. But actually, there's, there's a weeping because of the discord. Because he hears the two songs, the song we sing and the song of our life. True in, in life. We know mercy and justice is a part of that. I was telling Terry uh, this morning that our, our band practices on a Saturday morning for our services. And, uh, and yesterday, we, we feed the homeless once a month on our property. And, and yesterday, they were in the middle of practice. And the person who leads the feeding of the homeless came and disrupted the practice and just said, man, we need volunteers because so many people have arrived. And so they, they had to put down their instruments, cut their practice short, and go and feed the homeless. And they were a little grumpy. I was just like, this is amazing. This is worship. This is worship that God finds so sweet and so pleasing. Let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. We, 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 we make some big declarations in our songs, don't we? Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I give you control. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, I'm just like, I broke that thing a minute after I stopped singing it. <laughs> And so either we go like, oh, we get into kind of L.A. authentic mode. You know, well, I'm just not going to sing then. You know? I mean, not, not just L.A., Orange County as well, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we tend to do that. Okay, well, you know, I've, I've messed up this week, so I'm not going to lie in my song. So I'm just going to, like, get into sort of reflective and, and listening mode. I don't think that's the right response. I think the right response is, is to pour out your heart in confession and say, Jesus, thank you for your grace. And the song that I'm singing now doesn't connect, doesn't harmonize with the life that I'm living. Thank you for your grace. And may your grace not just forgive, but empower me to lay my life down in worship, not just to offer up a song in worship. True in life, but then true in doctrine. God cares not just about our lives, but the content of our words. Worship is not just floating a message in a bottle to an unknown God out there. Actually, God has revealed himself to his people in a book. And so worship should be true, not just in life, but true in doctrine. Jesus cares for that. He, 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 he says, you shall know the truth and, and the truth shall set you free. And one of the things I've seen in, in church is that, is that we tend to sing aspects about aspects of God that are culturally more appropriate for us and the aspects of God that are more other, more foreign to our culture, we, we tend not to sing about those. I love Exodus 33 where, where Moses says to God, show me your glory, show me your glory, show me who you are. And God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and Exodus 33, he passes before him and he says, the Lord, the Lord the gracious and compassionate one, slow to anger and abounding in love. And I find myself going, 
Yes, I love that kind of God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abound. And, and, and that's what God leads with because that is at the heart of God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But it's almost like, okay, I know who you are, God. Moses said, ah, oh, not so fast, Moses. Not so fast, Moses. And he lands with this. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, he's saying, there's an otherness about me. There's a grittiness about me that I know you don't get. But part of worship is acknowledging that, even if you're not super comfortable with that. Are we able to sing about the otherness of God? I love singing about the grace and the mercy. What about the sovereignty of God? What about the wrath of God? What about the holiness of God? What about the judgment of God? What about eternity, heaven and hell? Those are things about God that our culture doesn't love, but actually we need them. They are like steel in the backbone of our faith. Can I I be so bold as, as to say we need to sing about aspects of the cross other than adoption. I've, I've talked about adoption, but, but actually this, this idea that Jesus died in our place satisfying the wrath of God that we might enjoy the love of God, that, that Jesus drained the dregs of the wrath of God that we might drink the cup of the Father's joy. It's absolutely vital. You know, there are churches that have banned any songs about Jesus dying as a substitute absorbing the wrath of God. That great hymn, In Christ Alone, and on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, being banned from whole denominations in the USA. And there's something, I believe, in the urgency of God to say, don't just sing about the aspects of God that you love. Sing about the otherness of God, the eternity of God, the sovereignty of God. Because otherwise we worship a God made in our own image. And a God made in our own image is too small to save us. The Lord cares about truth. True in life and true in doctrine. You know, I've found that, that confessing sound doctrine, confessing the creeds, even dipping into liturgy. We, we, those of us who have a more free or charismatic, non-conventional church background, we go like, oh, don't, don't get into that stuff. We'll, we'll lose our life. No, actually, that is an anchor for us in the storms of our culture. There have got to be some things that, that are unchanging. So much is changing. There have got to be some things that are an anchor for the soul, that, that we join with the ancient faith, and it's an eternal faith going forward. And we found as we've started to, to, to dip in, I'm a card-carrying charismatic, and I will land with that. But as we've dipped into these unchanging creeds, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and on earth. There's something of an anchoring that comes into our people. There's a steely backbone. And I've found that, that, that God is able to minister to his people powerfully as we sing about unchanging truth. There's a, there's a passage in Scripture in Acts 13 where where the church was gathered, and, and it says they were worshiping and fasting. And that word worship is actually the word liturgeo. They were practicing liturgy. And in the middle of just rehearsing 
the doctrine, sound doctrine of God, the Spirit of God comes and speaks and says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. In other words, God is wanting to say, my people, don't be scared that as you practice sound doctrine, as you rehearse these hymns and these, and these songs chock full of unchanging truth, don't be worried that my spirit can't move. These things are like a trellis to the life of the vine. They give it structure and, and, and form and strength. In one of the most recent fasts we did, we were, we were practicing liturgy. We were reminding ourselves of of the faithfulness of God, of, of, of sound doctrine. And the Spirit of God spoke to us as we did that. It was on the last day of a fast. And I kind of found it was a little bit of a dry fast because we were talking about the gospel and unchanging doctrine and how we need to be faithful to it, etc. And on the last day of the fast, we, we, we were, this is getting really personal, just stay with me. Uh, we we We've multiplied four times in four years, and, and so there was this church that, that we'd adopted and we were about to launch into it, but, but I couldn't find the leader, couldn't find who was going to give leadership to this thing. And one of the people in the church had come and said, I, I just have faith that God is going to reveal who the leader is during this fast, as we're just rehearsing the faithfulness of God, doing the hard yards. And we were going to break the fast at 6.30 that night. And it got to 5.30. I'm just super hungry and going, God, it seems like you haven't spoken. And this fast has been kind of dry, but it's, it's good because you're faithful. And we're going to do, just do that. 5.30, before we break the fast at 6.30, I get a phone call from a friend in Texas. And he just says, hey, uh, there's a guy on my team who spoke to me this afternoon and asked if he could throw his hat into the ring to be the leader in the church in Chino. I'm like, what? Did you know anything about this? No, nothing about it. Long story short, it, he turned out to be the guy that somehow just on the other side of the continent, God by his spirit, as we were just going through faithfully, practicing doctrine, trusting in the faithfulness of God, God by his spirit speak, set apart for me, Kelly and Marianne, for the work I have for them. God is so faithful. But God, amongst his people, works trellis and vine. He works truth and he works spirit. So what is it as we land to be not just a true people, true in life and true in doctrine, but also spiritual? God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. God is seeking spiritual worshipers. And, and now... For some of you, well, this is, this is my vibe. I mean, I, mean I, I love spiritual things. And for others, grown up sort of more Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever, it's just like this is kind of the freak show. I've seen this. I've heard this. I just want to be authentic, and I don't want the game show. I don't want people in white coats and big limos. What does this mean? I, I think for many of us, we, we're fine with the Father. We're fine with Jesus, and that's what we, we, we see here. Jesus speaking about the Father. But Jesus won't let us go without talking about the Spirit. We worship Him in spirit and truth. And we know that, we, that we, can, we can be true in doctrine and true in life, but it can still be just a little bit dry. And it's no wonder that, that Jesus talked about the Spirit as this well of life. Essentially, He's saying, man, where there's a well, there is a way. Where there's a well, there's a way. I don't want people just to be singing these songs and laying down their life and doing justice. I want people 
to experience the, the, the dwelling place of God. And I think often when we think of, of spiritual or spirit-led worship, we, we, we go straight to tongues or interpretations or prophecy. What, what, what does it mean to be a spirit-led worshiping community? What does that mean? What does that mean? Let me try and have a go as we land. I think, firstly, it means that we look at the life of the Spirit in the life of Christ. He is the one who is the ultimate aim of what it is to be a worshiper, what it is to be Spirit-led. And we see Jesus, fully God yet fully man, relying on the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who at His baptism needed to hear the Father by the Spirit say, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. For many of us, we, we've, we've been burnt by, by, by the spiritual gifts, and we'll get there now. But to be, to be a spiritual worshiper, to be a Spirit-led worship, worshiper at, at its basis, is to understand that I worship by the Spirit of God. I understand my adoption, not just legally, but experientially, as the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. We need that. If Jesus needed that, why would we not need that? And very often we, we live in our heads and we get our theology right. We even get our life right. But the Holy Spirit is the one who bridges the gap between what is in our head and what is in our heart? Philippians 3, we who worship by the Spirit of God. The Spirit led Jesus, Luke 3. The Spirit empowered Jesus, Luke 4. The Spirit anointed Jesus. Whether we are Presbyterian or Pentecostal, if we're following Jesus, we're following a man who was reliant upon the Spirit of God. So what does that mean practically as we gather? I would say, first of all, it means that whether your meetings are long or short, whether they're structured or organic, what we are saying is we're giving the Holy Spirit some elbow room. It means that we, we plan, hopefully well, we plan the parts of our gathering, whether it's Sunday gathering or whether it's life group gathering or whether it's children's ministry gathering. We, we, we plan, plan it well, but we we hold our plans lightly. I like to see this kind of gospel-centered and spirit-empowered community like this. You know, you, you turn on Channel 4 or you turn on Channel 2 and you have the news announcer. And the news announcer talks about the truth, well, often with a slant, but the truth of what has happened. News is, is what has happened. There, there should be an aspect of our worship that is announcing what has happened. The good news of what Christ has done. But then after the news announcer comes the weather lady or the weatherman. And that's far less of an exact science. It's not announcing what has happened. That's news. That's doctrine. The weatherman or the weather lady goes like this. I think that the wind is going to blow. I mean... You want to be a weather announcer because no one ever kind of goes, you got it wrong. Because they realize it's not an exact science and the temperatures, it's kind of there and thereabouts. And we think the wind will be there. And, you know, we think it's an offshore, onshore. That is something of what it means to be a spirit-led community. There's got to be something of this. Which way are you blowing? Which way are you blowing? Jesus talked about it. The kingdom of heaven. 
It's like a wind that blows wherever it pleases. There's got to be that aspect in our worship. We're announcing the unchanging fact of what Christ has done, his finished work, but we're also saying, we're on tippy toes. We're saying, we think you're going to do this. We're trusting that you're going to do this. It's not exact science, but it's, it's art. It, there's risk. You can, you can get it wrong. But I, I, I want to be so bold, Mercy Town, as to call you back to not just announcing news, but, but predicting weather. Humbly, I want to call you to a sane, earnest, eager pursuit of the person and the gifts and the life of your spirit, of, of the spirit, because that's what causes a gathering to crackle. That's what can cause a gathering to just go to. We've seen that, but oh my goodness, where the people of God say, Lord, we're trusting that you will do something. We recently had a, a couple come and visit the church, and this guy uh, was a pitcher for the Red Sox. And his, his, his son had got, uh, got saved and, and got baptized at Easter. And so he and his wife came and, and visited and uh, they didn't come from a church background, um, and, but they, would ju- they just saw the change in their son. So they, they started visiting. And this guy, he's just kind of larger than life, and he just loved it, even though he didn't know what was going on, etc. I got to know him a little bit, but his wife was just freaked out. She had a bit of a Catholic background, but really didn't have much of a church background. She was just like, I love what's happening to my son, but I don't know what's going on. And, and, and she didn't like it. And so this ex-pitcher for the Red Sox actually came to me and he said, look, I'm loving being here, but like my wife hates it. Can you pray for her? So he and I were going back and forth and praying. I'm just going, oh God, you know, let, 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 let this be a home for them. Won't you meet them? Next week, and I don't tell anyone about this conversation. Next week, you know, during the greeting, I mean, you guys do the greeting. Songs of finish. Greet the person next to you. We're about to get on with the message. And one of the ladies in our church walks over to this lady, not knowing anything, and just says, Hey, hi, my name is Adele. What's your name? And, uh, and the lady says, I, I'm, I'm Antoinette. She says, are, are you new? She says, Yeah, I'm, I'm new. I'm a bit uncomfortable. And uh, so Adele says, You know, uh, this might sound strange. This is why everyone's greeting. Just quick. She says, I looked across at you, and I felt warmth in my hands. When it says, well, what does that mean? She says, normally when I feel warmth in my hands, uh, it's not an exact science, but it normally means God wants me to pray, lay hands on someone. And, and, and she said, and I just want to ask you, this might be way off, but do you get headaches? She's like, well, how do you know? She said, well, I've got a headache when I looked at you. And she says, I have migraines every hour. So immediately like, you've got her attention right now. She says, just before people sit down, can I just quickly pray for you? And she, she lifts up her hand, puts her hand on her shoulder. Her, her headaches are healed, are healed. They, they're part of the church. And I just go, oh, Lord, I love the risk. I mean, which way are you blowing? I, I don't know. This could go down in flames. But I'm willing to put my agenda on the line because, God, you're seeking people. You're seeking people with your spirit. I know that we worship out there in the world, in our work, amongst our families, in the park. But there's something about the people of God gathered around the well of God that is matchless. 
And I, I, want to, I want to call each of you as we land in singing to recognize that you are a vital string in this instrument of worship. You, you are vital. Let no one say, I have no need of you, whether you're musical or not. The people of God gathered to pour out their praise to God and say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Is, is matchless, friends. Land with this parable. A man walked into a violin shop and he talked to the craftsman who was crafting a violin. And he asked him how he made violins, how violins sound so beautiful. And the violin craftsman took a string and he said, do you think this violin string is free? And he waggled it around. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, it's free. He said, do you really think it's free? It's all on its own. Do you think it's free? He said, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely free. He said, no, actually, this violin string is not free. And he put it on the violin. And he anchored it in the nut here. And he started turning the tuning peg. And he started tautening it. And then he started playing it. And he said, you know, that violin string, without anchoring, without tightening, without tuning, it was free, but it was not free to sing. When that violin string allowed itself to be anchored, then it was free to sing. There's an aspect of God that we only understand in community when we allow him to anchor us in the violin. And that can feel constricting. Oh, Sunday every... Oh, yeah, I've got so much, there's much more other stuff to do. I'll just worship in the world. No, there's something about allowing God to anchor you that you find a new freedom, that you're free to sing. Each one of you are a vital, vital string in the violin that's ultimately for the glory of God, but also for the good of people. Let's pray.